Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today, we find out more about why alcohol-related deaths surged in the U.S. during the first year of the pandemic and how the situation in Canada compares. We speak with the former Prime Minister of Finland, a man who's met Vladimir Putin. He even helped broker a truce after Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008. We talk to him about what chance there is for a negotiated end to this war anytime soon and just how much the invasion has changed the entire security dynamic in Europe, including in Finland. Canada will take to soccer's greatest stage, the World Cup in Qatar later this year, after qualifying over the weekend. We get reaction from a member of the last Canadian men's soccer team to qualify way back in 1986. But first, the slap that rocked the Oscars. Will Smith has apologized for hitting comedian Chris Rock after he told an ill-timed joke about Smith's wife. Is the apology enough? And what's next for the Academy Award-winning actor? You may remember back to Friday, if you were listening, we asked you if you'd be watching the Oscars, and most of you said no. Well, it certainly has been the water cooler topic today. I was watching. My wife is a big fan of Benedict Cumberbatch, so we watched to see if he would win, although we knew that Will Smith would probably win. And Will Smith, it turns out, was in fact the center of attention, not because of his Oscar win either. It wasn't about the speeches, not even the outfits, but a slap, a slap heard around the world, it turns out. Midway through the show, if you don't know the story already, I'll keep this short. Comedian Chris Rock came on to present an award and took some time to roast some of the stars in the crowd, none of it particularly funny. But when he arrived at Best Actor nominee Will Smith and his wife Jada Pinkett Smith, he made a jibe about Jada's shaved head, which she has openly said is because of an autoimmune disorder that causes her hair to fall out. Smith seemed to laugh at first, Jada was clearly not amused, and soon Smith was out of his seat, bounding towards Rock and delivering a hard slap to the face. Here's what it sounded like. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? (laughs) 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 It's Jawazan. That was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh Uh-oh. Richard. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Wow, dude. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Well, Smith ended up winning the Best Actor Oscar. He delivered a tearful speech. He spoke about the crazy things you do for love, apparently, and apologized to the Academy and other nominees, but not to Rock, who isn't filing charges, according to police. Well, today, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences started a formal review around the incident, and tonight, Will Smith issued an apology to Rock, saying, quote, I was out of line and I was wrong. I'm embarrassed and my actions are not indicative of a man of the man I would like to be. So let me know what you think. Is the apology enough? Do you care? Is the apology enough? Or should there be more? 877-399-9898. That's 877-399-9898. Let me know where you are and who you are. Is the apology enough? Do you even care where you're watching the Oscars? But really, it was an act of violence on national television, broadcast around the world at one of the most illustrious televised events. A big deal. Joining me now to talk about this is the Global Mail's Western Arts correspondent, Marsha Liederman. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Hi, thanks for having me. It was, I mean, I, we, I was watching it live and it was very hard to figure out what exactly was going on, whether it had been set up or whether it was real, but it was, it was jarring. 
I couldn't believe it. I first thought it was staged. I thought it was a bit. And then when the sound cut out for quite some time, I thought, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't a bit. And then Chris Brock seemed really um, just very distracted. And I thought something's going on here. And of course, I'm on Twitter checking. And then I found uh, my 13-year-old son, who I was watching with, found uh, some video from Japanese from the Japanese television broadcast and it had not been bleeped out and I heard what we just heard there with um, with the expletives as well and I was absolutely shocked I didn't have a, a good sense of what the background was I didn't even know that there had been previous jokes uh, that rock had made at exp- at Jada's expense in the past about other incidents um, there was there was some history here but but it was certainly I mean, the joke was tasteless and awful, really, let's be honest. But the reaction was 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 equally out of control. Yeah, there there's bad blood. There were jokes before. Um, it's Chris Rock. He's, you know, he doesn't pull any punches. Maybe that was, maybe that's not a good term to use in this case. Um, but he, you know, he... He did make a tasteless joke uh, about something that is related to a medical condition. I understand it's upsetting. Um, Lots of comedians at that show make tasteless jokes. Lots of comedians in general make tasteless jokes. It does not in any way justify getting up on stage and slapping them, smacking them, punching them, whatever. Violence is not justified. What was more remarkable is how in you know how the show already kind of an odd show just continued as if it hadn't happened. Will Smith went and sat back down in his chair, and and on they went. Well, I can only imagine what it was like backstage. And in fact, I've read some accounts of what was going on backstage. There was some talk about do we remove Will Smith from the broadcast? Like making things even worse was in just a few minutes, they were going to be presenting the Oscar for Best Actor, and he was the leading contender uh, in that category, and in fact, won the Oscar. And then things got even more awkward and weird when he got on stage uh, crying and tried to... I thought, justify what he had done by comparing himself to the character he played in um, the film that he won the Oscar for, uh, Venus and Serena Williams' father, and, and how he was so tough on, on, his, on his girls because he was protecting them. And that's when he made the comment about how love makes you do crazy things, which is a very disturbing comment. Um, I think there are a lot of abusive people who might use a comment like that to justify their abusive behavior. It took him a long time, uh, all things considered, but he's issued an apology this evening. Is that enough? Um, He had to issue this apology. This was not going to go away. When he apologized last night, during his speech, it was to the Academy and I think to sort of the crowd in general, but he did not apologize to Chris Rock. It was, it, 
was not going to just die down. If anything, things were ramping up. Everyone was talking about it. The Academy is looking into it, as you mentioned. So he had to issue an apology. I think it's a good apology. Um, is it enough? I don't know. I mean, will I forever think differently of Will Smith? Yes, absolutely. Will producers think differently uh, when it comes to casting decisions? I don't know. It'll uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens to his career now. It was interesting because it was meant to be sort of a crowning achievement. And I've known Will Smith since he was, you know, DJ Fresh, you know, since he was he was uh, he was the Fresh Prince way of back course. when, you know, sort of a comedic rapper, and then he was the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So he sort of felt like I've we're about the same age. It sort of felt like we had I'd grown up watching him, and was happy yeah. to see him nominated for this one. So it it, it really cast a pall on what I thought was supposed to be a really glorious moment for him. It should have been the best night of his life, or one of the best nights of his life. It should have been over-the-top amazing. I mean, who can imagine winning the Oscar for Best Actor? And he... <laughs> He ruined it. Uh, he will never be able to look at that Oscar and just feel good about it. There will always be a shadow cast over it. And, that you know, I was looking at pictures of him dancing last night with his Oscar, and I, I just felt incensed. Like, how dare you just go on like you didn't just do a terrible, terrible thing. And it's now it's tainted uh and that's it's so sad for everyone for him for his wife for um all the people who worked on that film and for the williams family too i think yeah it certainly took this the spotlight off them on what was supposed to be a night of celebration they were all there of course watching um what about for the award show itself i mean the oscars had, had there were a lot of accusations that had slipped into irrelevancy uh i understand more people were watching last night but to to what end now with something like this happening? Well, it's really interesting. I was literally just at boot camp and all the talk was about Will Smith and the Oscars. And uh, the boot camp instructor feels certain that it was staged as a way to get people interested in the Oscars again. And she said, come on, they're actors. And um, I, I do not believe it was staged. I tried to set her straight. But here's what's interesting everyone was talking about it was everyone talking about the oscars the next day after last year's broadcast no they weren't no. so it it got some you know it's generated a lot of interest but as you say for all the wrong reasons even we would have been hesitant to talk about it but everyone was talking about it and there are issues here that deserve to be spoken about so thanks so much for your time marsha lederman i, I appreciate it thanks for asking <laughs> Well, these numbers are staggering, so I needed to find out more. New research out of the U.S. late last week shows alcohol-related deaths in that country jumped by 25% in 2020. 25%. A spike researchers believe is linked to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. So joining me now is Aaron White, Senior Scientific Advisor to the Director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Thanks for being here tonight, Aaron White. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. I guess the first question, just the numbers are, are certainly headline worthy. What did you find and, and, and just how much different is it uh, than years past? Mm. Well, we found that uh, during the first year of the pandemic uh, in the spring of 2020, there was a, a big increase in the number of, of death certificates that listed alcohol as one of the causes. Uh, it went up about 25% uh, 
um, to put that in context, it had been going up each year by about two to three percent. And so a 25% increase is a, a very big jump. Um, that, that translated into around an extra 23,000 um, deaths. Uh, and we are pretty certain that that's an underestimation, just given the way that uh, death certificates work. Sometimes we see uh, statistical anom- anomalies in these things, but this doesn't feel like it was one. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, we've been tracking these things every year. Uh, and uh, like I said, there was a, a pretty small but smooth sort of linear increase over the years and then this ab- abrupt leap. And it continued on into 2021. The, the 2021 data aren't final yet, but 2021 picked up right where 2020 left off. So it really looks like a, uh, a real phenomenon. This has hit a particular demographic uh, harder than others, and it's not maybe the one you would expect. Yeah, it actually, uh, in terms of the percent change from uh, 2019 to 2020, the biggest increases were actually in a sort of younger adult demographic, um, you know, the like 30s and 40s, um, which was a bit surprising. But we had been seeing before the pandemic started, we had been seeing uh, increases in um, ED hospital visits, um, emergency department visits in that age group. And actually, uh, surprisingly, a significant increase in, in uh, alcohol-associated uh, liver disease deaths and cases in, in a very young demographic. And you actually, I think you found that the number of deaths from alcohol-related reasons actually outpaced the number of COVID deaths for that particular age group. Yeah, that's correct. It's pretty close. It's right around uh, 74,000 uh, COVID-related deaths for people under the age of um, uh, 55 and under, and that's right around the number of alcohol. It's pretty close, but it was very surprising to see that. And so what that means is that if we look at death certificates and we add up the number of death certificates uh, for people under uh, 55 and under who died from COVID-related causes, and we compare that to the number that died from alcohol-related causes, they're, they're about the same. That really is an, ast- an astounding number of people. What do you think, or do you have any assumptions as to what might have led to that huge spike? Yeah, and I like the way you phrase that because because really all I have are assumptions uh, right now. We assume uh, that what happened is that people were drinking more um, because of primarily because of stress related to the pandemic. I mean, it was a frightening time, uh, particularly that when it when it first started in 2020, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stockpiling of of food and also alcohol. And um, the survey data that we have tell us that people began drinking more pretty quickly. And it was, again, tied to uh, stress from the pandemic. So we we think that's that's probably the best explanation um, is that people were drinking more because it was a really scary year. And also, I gather just because of the isolation, people likely had more time on their hands. And and I would imagine, and you mentioned this uh, in another interview, that a lot of programs that people would have relied on would have been suspended, uh, at least in 2020. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there, there was pretty quickly uh, a, a surge of options for telehealth and other online support, and but that you know that wasn't all in place when the pandemic started. And so, yeah, I think we had a lot of people that were in recovery and were used to getting support from uh, you know in-person meetings and, and maybe in-person therapy, and they simply weren't able to get that. And and we know that the the biggest driving factor behind relapse is stress. And so you combine the reduction in access to support and all that added stress. And so we, we suspect there were probably a lot of people who uh, returned to drinking um, during the first uh, 
uh, that first half of 2020, which helps explain why there was a, a, a pretty sudden increase in deaths from liver disease in 2020. I mean, as soon as the uh, pandemic got underway, we started seeing an uptick in deaths from liver disease. And so that could be a lot of people who were, were doing okay and not drinking, uh, but then they returned to drinking and their livers failed. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Aaron White, who's the senior scientific advisor to the director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in the U.S. about a new study that he uh, was part of that showed a 25% jump in deaths related to alcohol uh, in the first year of the pandemic and why that may be. Uh, you already mentioned that you've seen this trend at least continue through 2021 to a certain extent, another pandemic year. Uh, what needs to be done, I guess, do you think this will continue and what needs to be done to try to make sure that, that it doesn't? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, we're doing some of what needs to be done. I mean, I think we've, we learned how to provide uh, treatment and recovery support and online forums. And I think that all of that is going to be in place moving forward. And so hopefully, you know, another pandemic comes around or there's another crisis like this, it will, those things will be in place to help people. Uh, so that's one thing. The other is, I think we're, we're learning, uh, at least here in the United States, we can do a better job of developing healthy habits that help us uh, roll with difficult times and, uh, and make healthier choices in the face of, um, of all this added stress. I mean, it's, it was, it's, it still is a very difficult time for people and there still is a lot of fear and uncertainty about the future and it's going to be around for a while probably. And so I think we we're learning, we all need to help each other develop strategies for coping um, that work better in the long run than leaning on more alcohol or more food or, um, you know, other drugs, stuff like that. Right. Uh, but the 25%, again, it, it feels like epidemic proportions and not to use that word lightly. Yeah, and that's it is. Um, and again, I think what's particularly concerning about it is that death certificates don't capture a lot of the deaths related to alcohol. Alcohol is, is pretty commonly, um, I don't want to say left off because that implies somebody's leaving it off. It, it, it very commonly doesn't make it to a death certificate. So for instance, in, in 2020, uh, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration here, we had about 11,600 people die in alcohol-involved car crashes. But if you look at the death certificates, there's only about 1,300 death certificates that list both traffic crashes and alcohol. So only about 12% of all of those deaths are actually reflected in death certificates. And and I could go down a list of other uh, causes of death that alcohol plays a role in where alcohol just generally is not listed on the death certificate. So that that increase was probably far higher than is reflected in the death certificates. Aaron White, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're looking at this half hour at a new study out of the U.S. that showed that alcohol-related deaths jumped 25% during the first year of the pandemic. And of course, uh, the, the assumption is, this isn't definite, but the assumption it is is related to conditions that existed during the pandemic. Uh, certainly curious. We wanted her to know, though, I mean, these are this is an American study. Uh, these were American numbers. The highest age group, the age group that was the most uh, surprising, perhaps, was the 25 to 44 age group, where more people died of alcohol-related deaths, according to this study, than died of COVID over that first year.
So we wanted to find out how that might translate to this country. It's not quite as dramatic, but still, it is something to take notice of. And it does seem like the pandemic accelerated an existing problem and also speeds up the need to find some kind of solutions. So joining me now is Adam Shirk. He's a scientist at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria. Adam, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on. I guess the the obvious question, this is a, a kind of study in the U.S. where it showed this 25% increase in alcohol-related deaths in that first year of the pandemic, 2020. And I was also told that that trend has sort of continued into 2021, although those numbers aren't finalized yet. I was just wondering at your initial reaction to the findings, whether you were surprised by them or not. I wouldn't say surprised. Um, that number is quite high, that 25% increase, but we have seen commensurate um, increases in, in alcohol sales in Canada. Not that high, but in around the 5% range. And whenever use goes up, whenever alcohol sales goes up, we're going to see an increase in alcohol-caused harms too. So that, that number is probably a little higher than what we're looking at in Canada, but it certainly doesn't surprise me. One of the things that was, I mean, this tie between the increase in alcohol-related harms and the pandemic, I think anecdotally, a lot of us suspected it might happen. But have you in fact seen, is it is it proven now that beyond this, that we have seen uh, that increase in, in alcohol-related harm due to the pandemic? Well, I think the, the first thing to note is that a 25% increase is a lot, but even pre-pandemic, you know, before the pandemic, the harms caused by alcohol, both in Canada and the U.S., were very high. So alcohol is responsible for a pretty large burden of death and disability. Um, it's not always talked about, but it's there. In Canada, about 20,000 deaths every year are caused um, by alcohol. So, so we've seen these increases um, after the pandemic began with higher alcohol sales, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, and that's moved somewhat into, into harms, but the baseline level of those harms was already very high. One of the interesting findings in the American study was a huge jump specifically for, you know, age group 25 to 44. Uh, I don't know why that might be surprising, but I found it surprising when I read it. Um, does that jive with what you see in Canada as well? That's difficult to say. So, that, so drinking across the life course, you know, the age that we are, it changes on average. Um, when we're younger, we tend to kind of almost concentrate our drinking into more occasions, you know, we're going out or this sort of thing. And then as we age, we spread that consumption out <clears throat> over more days. Um, so uh, that is something that um, when we get a little bit of an increase in use or increase in alcohol sales, uh, we kind of will see that go more into that, those occasion-based drinks. And, and those can be very harmful, you know, in terms of injuries, um, acute injuries that can happen to someone uh, while they're drinking at a certain time. I guess the underlying truth here is that alcohol uh, continues to kill people at, at quite an alarming rate. Yeah, yes. I'm trying to take the focus a little bit off the changes after um, after the pandemic began, because the fact remains that, you know, pandemic or not, um, many of us use alcohol and wherever we're using alcohol, it's causing harm. So, you know, alcohol is, is one of the four leading behavioral risk factors for cancer, even though a lot of people uh, around 50 percent of Canadians still don't know that alcohol causes cancer those type of chronic conditions that build up over time 
Um, they, they, they are responsible for a pretty high burden of death and disability in the population. When you look at some of the factors that may have driven any increase during the pandemic, uh, one of the factors that was brought up in my conversation earlier was the idea that, that, that A, there were people relapsing and B, that people couldn't find or weren't able to access the sort of help or support networks that may have been in place for them pre-pandemic. Is, is that something that, uh, how do you read that? Yes, <clears throat> especially, excuse me, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, Many places where people would have presented for help, they were closed because everybody was trying to figure out where this pandemic would go. And so across all substances, across alcohol and across, across opioid use, um, we saw this where people didn't have any place to go to turn to for help. And so that did lead to, to an increase um, in, you know, with, with opioids uh, in overdoses and with alcoholic, very heavy use. So that at the beginning of the pandemic, when lots of places were closed, that definitely was an issue there. Now, as we move through um, the pandemic further on from the beginning, those places have opened back up. And so that bottleneck has kind of been removed. What are some of the, I mean, there are clearly things that, that can be done to try to combat this. Uh, what are some of the things that you've looked into that might work in terms of public policy for combating this high rate of alcohol-related deaths and an increasing rate of alcohol-related deaths? Yeah, so one of the interesting things with the pandemic was um, at the beginning, it brought about changes in alcohol policy and erosion of alcohol policies. So, for example, um, <clears throat> a lot of provinces in Canada they allowed for the first time online retailing or at-home delivery. They allowed shops to have longer hours. And then another important one is that when you pick up um, a meal at a restaurant to take away, you can take alcohol with it. Now, it's not the same in every province, but, but many of them have gone to that. And so these um, seemingly small changes, they're kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. They all add together they're pushing in the same direction to make alcohol easier to access, more available, and that pushes up our use of alcohol. You know, all of us um, use a little bit more and over a population that that adds up to a lot. So one of the things that we would encourage governments to look at from a policy lens is re-strengthening those alcohol policies that were eroded at the beginning of COVID. I guess part of that was to allow um, the service, the, the service sector, the hospitality sector, which is which does well on alcohol sales, to allow them to try to recapture a bit of that. Is, is there a bit of a and, and pardon the use of the term addiction, but is there a bit of an addiction to the kind of revenue that alcohol generates from tax revenue to <clears throat> revenue within within the hospitality industry? Um, yeah. Uh, Firstly, I think what you said is right. Like at the beginning of the pandemic, restaurants in particular were really struggling. I understand that that's why governments allowed takeaway alcohol, these sorts of things, to buoy those economic times when they were very difficult for restaurants. Now we're kind of moving past that so we can look at, at again, re-strengthening those policies. Um, another thing that I wanted to say was alcohol, in terms of the price of alcohol, uh, it's at it's at a reasonably fair level in Canada, but we can still find alcohol that's, that's very cheap. And so another policy that governments can implement is putting in a floor price on a unit of alcohol, a unit of ethanol, that kind of just removes the very cheap alcohol 
um, from the system. It's called a minimum unit price. And this minimum unit price kind of targets that super cheap alcohol. That's another thing that governments could consider. Adam, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, let's look in on the war in Ukraine now. Uh, Over the weekend, of course, U.S. President Joe Biden made some remarks about uh, Vladimir Putin shouldn't be in power. That was interpreted by some as a gaffe, interpreted by others as straight talk, interpreted by others as a bit of both. Um, Today, he stood by his words, saying the U.S. is not calling for regime change in Russia, but Putin has to go. It was expressing my outrage. He shouldn't remain in power. Just like, you know, bad people shouldn't continue to do bad things. But it doesn't mean we have a fundamental policy to do anything to take Putin down in any way. Well, as the fighting continues, more than 4 million Ukrainians have fled the country, including people escaping the siege of the eastern coastal city of Mariupol. Russia has resorted to pummeling Ukrainian towns and cities, including Mariupol, with artillery and airstrikes after being dragged down or bogged down by Ukrainian resistance. Here's one woman who escaped Mariupol to get to Poland. There is no gas, no electricity, no heating, no cell phone service. Uh, We melt snow to have at least something to drink. We cook on open fires uh, under shelling and bombs, just because if you don't, you will have nothing to eat. Well, stories like that and the high number of civilian deaths uh, mean that the UN Secretary General is calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Ukraine and an end to Russia's indiscriminate attacks. The solution to this humanitarian tragedy is not humanitarian. It is political. I'm therefore appealing for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to allow for progress in serious political negotiations aiming at reaching a peace agreement based on the principles of the United Nations Charter. UN Secretary General General Antonio Guterres. Well, today, Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, spoke to Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, gave him an update on new ceasefire talks with Russia that start tomorrow. The two leaders talked about next steps, including more humanitarian aid and military support, as well as further sanctions against Russia. So is there any chance for any breakthrough coming up at these talks? My next guest not only dealt with Vladimir Putin, he helped broker the peace deal between Russia and Georgia following Russia's 2008 invasion of its neighbor. Alexander Stubb is the former prime minister of Finland and a professor at the European University Institute, and he joins me now. Alexander Stoop, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, my pleasure. I think a lot of the conversation now that we're more than a month into this invasion, a lot of the conversation here in Canada has been about this idea that Vladimir Putin is an irrational actor. Uh, he's someone that you know, and, and you argue that he's not. Yeah, certainly not. I, I think it's a Western fallacy. We try to do this kind of psycho analysis of individuals that we haven't even met and we just you know look at them on TV or listen to their rantings and think that they're irrational. But actually, Putin, I met him a few times. I, I think he's very analytical. He's very cold, very shrewd, uh, very well prepared to most situations. And, uh, you know, everyone makes mistakes, but don't make the mistake of thinking that he's irrational because he's not, especially not from a Russian perspective. I was going to say, in, in that sense, how do you decipher his decision to invade Ukraine? Again, or further part, further invade Ukraine, I should say. Yeah, it, it's part of his you know, big plan for what he calls Great Russia or Historic Russia. 
and it basically goes back to a vision of Russia in the 1800s, which is based on three pillars, uh, one language, Russian, uh, one religion, Orthodox, and then one leader himself. And for him, it also means that, you know, Belarus is part of Russia, Ukraine is part of Russia, and he might even be willing to push it a little bit forward. And in, in many ways, you know, it, it's really about his legacy and the way in which he sees his place in history somewhere next to, you know, Ivan the Terrible or Peter the Great or, or Stalin, who he still admires. So, you know, it, it's just a different type of rationality. So, I, you know, he hasn't lost his marbles because he sits far away in a big table. He hasn't been isolated during COVID. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it, this is the way in which he is. Uh, and, and, uh, and this is what we should expect. So instead, focus on what he's doing rather than what he's thinking. What were his aims with this invasion? And, and how, how badly did he, did he get it wrong? Well, I think he got it very wrong, actually. He's, he, he's three stated apes, right? I mean, the first one was to basically take over Ukraine. I mean, he didn't use those words, but he really wanted to replace Zelensky and put in a, a Russian puppet government into Ukraine. The second one, and linked to this was, of course, the idea that, you know, he claimed that, that Ukraine shouldn't join NATO. The second one was to push back the frontiers of NATO. So he, he, he doesn't like the fact that Eastern and Central European countries, say the Baltics and, and Poland, Slovakia, the Czechs, uh, I name, name those because I know I have a Canadian audience. They understand ice hockey. So, <laughs> so you know, he wanted to push, push back the frontiers. Uh, but then the third one is that he wanted to keep Finland and Sweden out of, out of NATO. And, you know, on those three accounts, he's, he's failed miserably because, number one, Ukraine, uh, you know, is becoming European and wants to go into NATO. Number two, NATO has never shown more unity and purpose since its foundation in 1949. And now Finland and Sweden are knocking on the door of NATO membership. So strategically, he, he, he did make a colossal mistake. I did want to ask you about Finland and Sweden and NATO in a bit. Uh, before I do that, you were involved in the negotiations to bring an end to the invasion of Georgia uh, 14 years ago. Is there any chance for a negotiated peace here, do you think? Well, not yet. I mean, the stakes then were actually much lower. I mean, I went in with, I was foreign minister at the time and, and chairman of the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, uh, and went into Georgia to Belize first, together with Bernard Kushner, then uh, Foreign Minister of France. And we were able to get a ceasefire agreement after going to Moscow. And then the, you know, the, the deal was clinched by, by President Sarkozy. But in five days, we got six points. But I think the stakes were much lower, uh, for especially for Putin. And, and from that conflict, that war, Yes, of course, there were casualties, but two frozen conflicts were created, the areas of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So I, I thought this would be the same case, actually, to, to create some kind of a frozen conflict in you know, Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, but, I, you know, it, it's just this, this war is too big for Putin to fail. Uh, and, and also Zelensky and the Ukrainians are not going to give up. There's no reason for doing that because, you know, this was a, this was a war that was supposed to end in 48 hours and 
soon will be in 48 days and it hasn't ended. In that sense, uh, have we done enough, do you think? Uh, have countries like Canada and, and allies done enough to support Ukraine? Yeah, I'd say enough and then more, because you always have this sort of, you know, idealism versus realism. Of course, you'd like to go in there and, you know, help out and, and, uh, and you know, need to be involved. But, you know, there there are collateral risks and, and risks in, in that as well. So, you know, the thing that we've done so far is, first of all, to show political solidarity. Second, to put the biggest wave of sanctions that we've seen in the history of the West, especially the European Union, with four waves of sanctions, now a fifth one coming up. Um, and then, of course, providing arms, uh, which, which we have done. Um, and and I, I think, you know, this took Putin by surprise and the Russians by surprise. The first one was, first surprise for Putin was, was Ukrainian resistance and, and resilience. And the second one is the unity of the West. And, you know, he realizes that he's going to be completely isolated. I mean, we're looking at the biggest country in the world with the greatest natural resources in the world becoming a little bit of a North Korea to a certain extent, you know, a pariah state because of the actions of, of his leaders. So, yes, I would say that we have, we have done in, enough, um, you know, whether you're American or Canadian or, or European, not much more we could have done. When you look at the possibility of of offering him at least ways out or offering what we like to call off ramps, uh, and now we're hearing today there are obviously reports out of of, of an alleged poisoning at one of those negotiation <laughs> sessions. Where does that? I mean, it's hard to make sense of of exactly what Vladimir Putin wants and what would bring him to a table in the first place, and what Ukraine would be willing to cede at this point, if anything. Well, that's exactly the point. I mean, it, it, you know, if those poison cases are, are true and, and verified, I mean, just just when you think that it can't get crazier, it, it does. And 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 in in that sense, you know, he, he's not a person who is in a state of mind, a rational state of mind, may I add, to 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 negotiate for anything. And and really, I guess the only thing that he can try to do is is to try to get some kind of a deal which he can then sell to his public back home, which still supports him quite strongly, may I add, and, and partially because of, you know, the, 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 the war propaganda and information war and, and what Russians are fed. They're basically being isolated from Western flows of, of information, but, but also partially because, you know, he's toning down his aims. I mean, the original aims were big. Now he's already talking about, well, only taking over parts of Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. But, you see, I just don't see an end game in this. I mean, you know, if you just look at the war maps at the moment, what the Russians have been able to seize or then the back off, I mean, it's very patchy. And, and you can't end up with, with sort of, you know, 20 small little frozen conflicts and aerial overtakes uh, that, that, that in, a, in a permanent state of affairs because no one wants this to, to end up being the new Bosnia, if you will. A Bosnia of 44 million people doesn't sound very appealing. No, no, it certainly doesn't. Um, I'm speaking with Alexander Stug, former Prime Minister of Finland and professor at the European University Institute. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about the reaction from Finland to all this, obviously a long border, a relatively long border with Russia, and uh, what that might mean for other countries who are neighbours to big powers. We'll be back.
I'm back with Alexander Stubb, former Prime Minister of Finland and professor at the European University Institute. We've been talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine now a little more than a month after it happened and and, uh, and why Vladimir Putin, at least in his from his perspective, is acting rashly in all this and how there may, may or un, there's unlikely to be a climb down anytime soon. One of the very interesting things we've been watching from afar, of course, is the sudden surge in popularity. Um, for Finland joining NATO and Sweden as well. Uh, how close is that to being a reality and what's driving it now? Oh, yeah, it's very close. I mean, you know, we used to be uh, 50% against NATO membership and 20 in favor. I hasten to add that I belong to the transatlantic uh, NATO guys. In other words, I've always been in favor of NATO membership for, for Finland. I, I always thought it would increase security here in the northeastern corner of Europe. Now, may that be as it is. Uh, now, these opinion polls have completely reversed, which basically means that the latest one gave 62% in favor of NATO membership and 12 against, sorry, 16 against. So, you know, public opinion has shifted and with that politicians have shifted so if, if you ask me the question how close are we to filing an, uh, an application i say we're not days and weeks away but we are months away uh we could even be talking about one or two months i i really don't know because you know I, i'm not a decision maker anymore but this is my sort of gut feeling and we've seen this shift at, at lightning speed across Europe, more or less, I mean, specifically Germany, but this complete reassessment of the security situation in a matter of four or five weeks, it's, it's been astounding to watch. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, after the end of the Cold War, um, and especially the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, many of us, much like Francis Fukuyama, believed uh, sort of in the end of history, if by that we mean that, you know, trade, uh, freedom will lead to this avalanche of, of liberal democracies being born all around the world. And of course, that took place in Europe, uh, you know, quite remarkably and, and very fast. Um, and, 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 but now that has been reversed. So in Europe, the way in which we look at things is that we've created a, or Putin has created a, a new iron curtain. Uh, so on one side, you have Russia, whatever that territory includes, which is authoritarian, totalitarian, and aggressive, and actually isolated. And the other side of that curtain, you have sort of a group of, say, 30 to 35 European states. Um, some of them are in the European Union, some of them are in, in NATO, some of them are in, in both, or some in either or. And this group is, is an alliance of, of democracies uh, countries that believe in cooperation and free trade and globalization and a social market economy. Uh, and, and, and the reaction has been to say, okay, we tried to bring Russia into the realm of a normal international modern state, but we failed. Uh, and I, I think one of the big issues here, actually two, is one is this curse of natural resources. You know, it's got the greatest natural resources in the world, which basically means that it hasn't been capable to modernize itself. So 50% of its state budget 
uh, came from uh, exports in fossil fuels, namely oil and, and, and gas. And you know, it's kind of a comfortable place to be in, but it doesn't exactly drive the tech sector forward, if you will. Uh, and secondly, it's got this sort of cultural, historical vision of itself as always being attacked by the rest of the world, whether it's the Mongols or the Nazis or or, or now NATO. And on top of that, it feels like it has saved Europe at least twice, you know, once from Napoleon and the other time from, from, from Hitler. So when it didn't become part of this sort of international community, the rest of us are now reacting and say, okay, that's it. You know, we, we can't trust them anymore. So let's join NATO. Let's join the European Union and, and realize that we're in this for the long haul with the Russians. One thing that's always struck me, though, is I think Vladimir Putin's always been well aware that the, that unity of 35, or if you include the US and Canada and others, that given domestic politics in all those countries, that unity can fray. Is time on Vladimir Putin's side here, or is time on everyone else's side? I think time is on everyone else's side. I mean, you know, he could count on the fraying and the sort of fragmentation of the West uh, slowly in the post-Cold War era. And of course, with his information wars and trolls, meddling in in you know US elections or 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 in you know Hungary and Poland and and sort of this how would I say conservative right wing uh, of 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 the liberal world he was doing quite well but now you know he's created the sort of 1956 moment or 1968 moment by which I mean to say same thing with the Soviet tanks marching to to Budapest to Hungary in 56 and then to Prague in, in 68. So this is going to leave a long-term uh, sentiment. Alexander Stubb, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. There'll be no stoppage time. go. Even Canadian announcers can compete with the world's best now. So it was a magical day in Toronto yesterday at BMO Field, leading only a draw. Canada's men's soccer team demolished Jamaica 4-0 to qualify for the World Cup for the first time since 1986. With just one match to go, Canada is through to Qatar with a good chance of finishing top of the qualifying table ahead of Mexico and the U.S. That's even more satisfying. It has been a meteoric rise for the Canadians, once ranked below 133, I think, not that long ago, up to 33, 110, actually, up to 33 now. Um, head coach John Herdman, uh, he used to coach our women's national team. I met him in London, actually, in 2012. He's a really enthusiastic guy. He seems to have been a great coach. No one really knew what would happen when he took over the men's team. And man, was he excited yesterday when this happened. Here's what he had to say. Look, the fans have been unbelievable. That's all these boys right at the beginning we've got to give this country something to believe in they lost hope they lost faith but we're a football country now and they all know it a soccer country john a soccer country uh, it's been a mighty long wait for canadian soccer fans though he's absolutely right 36 years to be exact the first and only time we played in a world cup was back in 1986 in mexico city and the man who scored the goal that got us there and played in that very same world cup joins me now. George Picos, welcome back. You must be very excited. 
Oh, thanks, Ben. Yeah, it's really hearing all that cheering and all that emotion and John talking and yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty special for sure. You know, it's one thing, uh, I remember when you scored the winning goal against Honduras back in Newfoundland in 85, it was a bit more of a scrappy game, um, but a win a win is a win is a win. But Team Canada really looked phenomenal yesterday. That was a beautiful game to watch. Yeah, I can just say, wow, you know, what a, what a way to, you know, to, you know, to get into the World Cup, put your, put your notch right there saying, hey, this is, this is us. We're, we're, we're coming through and nobody's stopping us. And it, uh, I don't think anybody's going to stop them in, you know, in this group anyways. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see who who they get drawn against eventually, because I guess you knew that from 86. Uh, The draw can be a big deal. You ended up playing some of the best. You ended up with France, who had been to the final in 82 when you played them in 86. Yeah, yeah. uh, France, Hungary, and and, and Russia. And uh, um, with them finishing on top, which, which, you know, I hope they finish with, you know, another real good – showing as as they did yesterday and and win and win the group and uh and then get in i don't think anybody wants to be with them really (laughs) the way way i'm seeing it (laughs) so yeah tell me a bit about i mean one of the things that's been talked about a lot is just how much the uh the mls coming to canada having in toronto vancouver and montreal how much it helped develop a new generation of Canadian players. Cause we really have seen, and you, I know you've watched through the thick and thin, like you've watched through good times and bad. Um, but just how much better is this team than anything we've seen since you were out there? Well, since, since, uh, Tony waiters, I think, uh, the national team I saw today, I think they've gone through about at least a dozen, a dozen coaches that, that couldn't couldn't get it uh, get it straight with the players, and uh, somehow John's John got it straight with the women's team, and and then he 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 could see that there's there was lots going on in the men's league, and and he switched over there, and everyone's kind of joined in on on his system, and the coaching levels are are great, and uh, everyone's um, just looks to me like there's so much brotherhood there that that uh you know when they're cheering and in the circle and then after the game yesterday they you know Serio's got the drum beating in there i mean you know canadians all over the world were had tears in their eyes you know you know i'm sure you know it was it was spectacular I was thinking about you yesterday because I remember we talked about you uh, scoring the the winning goal in St. John's in front of uh, in front of I, I think it was a, a rowdy five thousand. Um, that was certainly a boisterous, big. That's one of the. I mean, throughout this World Cup qualifying, I have to be honest. I, I, I've I've been really impressed with how how passionate Canadian fans have been about this team. Yeah, well, it's been 36 years, it's, uh, you know, and it's about time. And, and this particular team, you know, uh, we uh, in 86, we were quite a bit older. You know, these guys have got a couple old guys. Uh, the rest of them weren't even born, be- you know, before 86. And and uh, uh, they're they're off to the right foot. Everybody's tired of, you know, you know, not not making it. And um 
you know, we we got all these players playing internationally now in the Major League Soccer and now the Canadian Premier League, you know, players have gone from there into, you know, Major League Soccer. So, you know, every, everywhere I go in Victoria, there's there's soccer just everywhere. It's it's really gone, you know, it's you know crazy over, you know, in Canada. And and I'm re- I'm really happy for it. Yeah, because for people who don't know, I mean, you played for the Canadian national team, but you also spent a career after that, basically, you know, uh, on Vancouver Island, but a career sort of championing soccer, coaching, and, and all that stuff. You've really been in soccer. You were in soccer for 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 a lifetime, really. Yeah, yeah. When I uh, when when I came back after the national team, there I was. I just went back into the, in my player coach position and and coach my kids and uh, youth here. And then I went into you know uh, when I retired from that, I went 13 years into refereeing uh, locally and high school boys and girls soccer, men's and and that. I just retired from that now, and I'm. Kind of kicking the ball again, <laughs> not much, <laughs> but a little bit. <laughs> maybe maybe you'll get that call up, George. You never know. You never know. Tell me a bit about what it's like to go to as I mean, it's almost goes without saying. But what's it like to be on the pitch at a World Cup? Well, it's you know it's it's overwhelming. You know, uh, you know all these all these players are professional, and you know, and and uh, you know the. To represent every time that I put on Canada's jersey, you know, it just brought a smile to my face, and I was so proud. And when you hear that national anthem, you know, you get the chills like you like you never had it, had the chills in your life, and it's and and you're it's it's a feeling that you'll that you have to get there to really know know the feeling and and I know that these guys are going to you know uh show show very well they're they're going to do better than we did you know we were unfortunate not to, not not to score a goal but uh you know with with John, Jonathan and Alfonso hopefully we'll be back and uh, you know all these Buchanan I mean it just goes on and on you know the hardest thing is going to be to pick you know, 24 players. John's probably got about 18 players picked out, but, you know, you got to pick six more and, you know, the substitutes are kind of, you know, sitting on the edge. Are I going to be able to be one of the ones to represent Canada in the World Cup? It's yeah. it's nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah, I think only Atiba Hutchison was born the last time when you were playing in, in Mexico City that time around. Um I guess, I guess, even for players, and of course, the player, a lot of players on the on the on the national team now have some pretty big league experience, especially Alfonso Davies, but other players who play in Europe and in the MLS. But it must be a, a different experience to step on the field at a World Cup. It must be fairly overwhelming just because of all the excitement around you. Totally, uh, you know, overwhelming is is the word, really. You know, even for myself, you know, the you know the last few months with Canada getting closer and closer you know I people have been coming up to me and you know and patting me on the back and giving me telling me we need you back you know and all this and it's <laughs> it it is a it is overwhelming you know and and uh, you know when when I sit back you know like like after the, talking to you later I'll think that you know here we are you know 
36 years later and and they're and they're still calling me because they haven't been able to make it so this could be my last phone call then i think <laughs> oh i don't think so we'll call you when we win the world cup what are you talking about um <laughs> Uh, obviously, we're looking forward to seeing if I mean I, I'm, we're looking forward to seeing Canada score our first goal at the World Cup. That'll that'll be interesting. What about this? I mean, you talked to me last time we spoke. You talked about being in a place that was just soccer crazy, Mexico, right? And playing the World Cup there, and just the energy there was was indescribable. What do you think? 2022 Qatar in the winter is it going to be different? Will that have any impact? Do you think it feels like it'll be a little more sterile, even though there'll be a lot of fans there? I guess. Yeah, I don't. I don't really, really know what to, what to expect of it. it. Whether it's going to be, you know, military, you know, surroundings around there, or or it's going to be wide open to the to the world, or you know, I'm sure it'll be, you know, first totally first class. Probably it could be one of the who knows one of the best ever, you know, World Cups ever. But. Uh, um, I'm really looking forward to it. I hope Canada, you know, um, you know, performs well. I'm predicting that they'll get out of the first round and, you know, get into, uh, you know, the quarterfinals, you know, because uh, once you get on a roll, and sometimes it's good to lose a game, you know, when they lost to Costa Rica, now they can regroup, and which they did, and they and they uh, took it out on Jamaica, and they're probably going to take it out on Panama, you know, to so when they get the draw on Friday, that no one, nobody's going to be in their group. <laughs> I was going to say the last question I had for you was was when the draw happens. Do you hope that Canada ends up in a difficult group like you did back in 86? I mean, the Hungarians had, were legends. They weren't as good in 86 anymore, but they were a legendary European team. The Soviets had always been very good. The French were great at that point. Do you, think, do you hope Canada gets drawn into a tough group that will really challenge them? Or are you hoping for one of those easier, you know, you see those easier groups where you're thinking, hmm, they could really, they could really beat two out of those three teams and give the third one a good run for their money? Yeah, yeah, I, I I don't think um I don't think it's going to going to be a problem. I think uh, you know uh you know John John John's got it worked out pretty good in there and um whoever they draw they're going to give it you know 110% and represent Canada you know with with all their might and uh and represent the, you know the country just as you know Canada will be following you know the team as they have been now. I mean when I saw the game yesterday I never seen so many you know canadian flags it's got to be the nicest flag in the world i'll tell you what in my opinion you know and and the cheering and you know we're playing in snow you know we can we can do it all us canadians and and we're going to do a a real good uh, showing in you know in the world cup and we're going to show them that as john says football we call it soccer we're uh (laughs) we're up with the big boys now yeah I know what you'll be doing from the 21st of December, at least for a few weeks, and maybe hopefully all the way to the end. Who knows? George Pecos, uh, once again, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and great to have your perspective on what it's like to be Canadian and having played at a World Cup, which a bunch of, uh, a bunch of young men are about to figure out uh, what that sensation's like. Yeah, they're gonna they're they're gonna have the time of the life, you know. There's nothing better, you know, than you know being a footballer rep, representing your country at the biggest sporting event in the world. I can hardly wait. George, well put. I look forward. Maybe we can grab a game together when uh, come November. <laughs> look forward to it. Thanks, man. Thanks for hooking up right. with me. 